the Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book 5, Critical Spring. Chapter 22, Frying Pan to Fire. Part 2. Martin untied Jasmine's reins and emerged from the trees with his pistol at low ready. He might have only one bullet, but the newcomers wouldn't know that. There he is, Robert called out. That's all of our group, just the three of us. Well, what's going on? Martin asked. Robert waved an arm toward the newcomers. Uh, these guys heard my shot and came to investigate. They thought it was raiders. Well, they were kind of right, said Martin. He pointed to the dead man in the sweatshirt. Uh, we don't mess around when it comes to raiders, said the oldest of the three men. They were all shabbily dressed and wore scraggly beards. I can see that you boys know why. The man touched his face at spots where Martin's face had bruises, scratches, and sores. You, you say there's two more out in the woods? asked the youngest of the three strangers. He was in his early twenties, had quick, nervous mannerisms and canine eyes. Robert pointed to where they found Trevor. The young man ran into the woods. Your friend here says you were all headed to Keene uh, for some medicine? asked the older man. He brushed his gray hair back under his ball cap. Not sure I'd trust anyone in Keene. Well, Martin hedged carefully. Uh, we don't trust him, but we need to see if he has what we need. The twitchy young man emerged from the trees, dragging the two bodies by their shirt collars. He threw them on top of the sweatshirted body and then pulled a machete from its sheath. With two hands on the grip, he began chopping at the corpses. Robert and Martin looked at each other with nervous apprehension. Um, began Martin, you're letting him do that? Uh, everyone in our group hates raiders, said the older man. They hit us hard the past couple of months. Cody's just a bit more, well, uh, motivated. Raiders killed his wife and baby last month. This is kind of his, um, grieving process, you see. Pity these boys were already dead. He really hoped he'd find some live raiders so he could chop em up alive. The twitchy man chopped at the dead man's legs and arms and sides, shouting incoherent one- and two-syllable words with each blow. The older man folded his arms across his chest and leaned back on his heels. The third stranger, also a young man, watched Cody's frantic hacking with a satisfied grin on his face. Robert glanced at Martin, then pointed with his eyes to where Martin had come out of the woods. He seemed to be asking Martin about the attacker he had fought with. Martin swallowed hard at the sight of Cody's wild eyes as he hacked. His pace slowed due to fatigue. Martin returned Robert's glance and shook his head a little. He didn't want to tell the strangers about the man lying in the woods. Well, Jack, Martin addressed his fallen attacker in his mind. I'll show you what love for enemies looks like. I won't tell them that you're out there. This Cody guy would love to chop you to bits. Well, I uh, hate to interrupt Cody's grieving process, said Martin, but our friend was stabbed by one of the uh, men in that pile. Trevor's lost a lot of blood and needs medical supplies. What we had was taken from us by people in Jaffrey. Yeah, sounds like you must have stumbled onto the west side, said the older man. 
Yeah, bad break. Jaff is a tough place to be. We don't have any medical stuff. Yeah, barely squeaking out a life at all. Tell you what, though, there's a Christian camp thing up on the foot of Monadnock. I hear they've got supplies and a couple of folks with some medical training. You could take your friend up there. Well, how far is that? Robert peered north. The top of Monadnock couldn't be seen above the treetops. Well, only a couple of miles, uh, but it's mostly thick woods. I don't think Trevor can ride on Diva, said Martin. All that twisting and bouncing will keep his wound open. He'll bleed out. Well, we could make a stretcher, said Robert, but on foot that could take two or three hours. Robert looked back at Trevor, lying on the grass, and lowered his voice as he leaned close to Martin. I don't think he's got two or three hours. I can still hear, you know, said Trevor in a weak voice. What about one of them western horse draggy sled things uh, made out of two sticks? I saw that in a, an old western movie. A travois? Robert asked. I don't know what it's called. A two-stick draggy thing probably isn't right. Robert shook his head. Oh, a travois would be even a rougher ride than on the saddle. Well, wait, Martin said. You mentioned a stretcher. What if we tie the point of the travois to the back of Peaches' saddle, like normal, but instead of dragging the ends on the ground, we put the two ends into Jasmine's stirrups? We'd have a horse-to-horse -horse stretcher. We can use a tarp and make a hammock thing between the poles. Well, that sounds like our best bet, said Robert. Uh, mister, could we have your friend with the machete cut down and trim us uh, two young birch trees, uh, maybe fifteen feet long? The older man looked at Cody, who was sitting on the grass beside the pile. His bloody machete sat beside him. Well, I think it'd be good for young Cody to focus on something else. Uh, Cody, uh, come over here a sec. Uh, these guys could use your help. Martin pointed to a stand of young birch on the south side of the cut. Well, there are some good ones, he gestured to the north side. I'm going to go back and um, look for something. Uh, I'll, I'll be right back. He handed Robert Jasmine's reins so that he held all three horses. Martin walked into the woods, scanning the ground, pretending like he was looking for something. Ah, uh, grunted the fallen hoodlum. The pansy returns. Be quiet, you idiot, Martin whispered. There's a crazy guy out there with a machete who just chopped up the bodies of your dead buddies. He'd like nothing more than to chop you to bits, too, alive. I didn't tell them that you were out here. Uh, oh, why not? The man asked with obvious suspicion. Martin squatted down near the man's head, but out of reach of the man's functional arm. That's the love for enemies you scoffed at. I'm going to give you the best second chance you'll ever get. Fact is, you're in bad shape. Both your shin bones are completely broke through. So's your arm. You've probably got internal injuries, too. The man winced from pain as he lifted up on his unbroken elbow. He looked down to see his foot turned backwards, as if he was a misassembled mannequin. We're leaving in a few minutes, said Martin. You're going nowhere. It still gets really cold at night. The odds are you're going to die of hypothermia before morning. Second chance, the man grumbled. Yeah, 
continued Martin. When you die tonight, you're going to stand in front of God. Bah! God! scoffed the man. Well, can't say if I care if you go to hell or not, Martin continued. But my not caring is my problem. However, it's on me to tell you that if you honestly accept Jesus and beg his forgiveness for your sins, he said he'll forgive you and you'll end up in heaven instead of hell. Well, you can shove your stinking religion up your... A spasm of pain cut his rant short. Hey, suit yourself, said Martin as he stood up, just delivering the message. What you do with it is your business. Nobody is sent to hell against their will. They choose to go willingly. In your last hours, you'll get to make your choice. You can repent and spend eternity in heaven, or you can choose to stay angry, proud, and stupid and spend eternity in hell. The choice is yours. Hey, Martin, called Robert's voice. We got it rigged up. Come on. By not shooting you myself or telling that crazy man out there that you're in here, I'm giving you the last second chance you'll ever get. How you spend it is on you. The wounded man scowled silently at Martin. Some of the seed fell on stony ground, Martin thought. Uh, coming, Martin shouted. He stood and walked back to the clearing. Uh, help us get Trevor up there, said Robert. It took four of them to get Trevor hoisted up to the tarp lashed between the two long birch poles. Martin placed a wad of shirt cloth against the wound and tied it down with paracord to Trevor's waist. Well, this should keep some pressure on it. I'll keep an eye on things from the saddle. Uh, we'll stop if we need to re-rig. Uh, whatever, said Trevor. He laid back with his eyes closed. Uh, could you guys get us started in the right direction? asked Martin. Uh, we're not asking you to take us all the way there. Just get us going right. Robert had his maps, so they really didn't need the men as guides. Martin wanted to draw them away, lest Cody discover the wounded man before he had time to repent if he was going to. Ah, sure, said the older man. Ah, we need to get back anyhow. It'll be dark here in a couple hours. Ah, come on, boys. The three bearded strangers kept a brisk pace. They clearly knew the woods and the fastest routes. Trevor bounced gently in the tarp stretcher as Peaches and Jasmine covered the rough ground. Diva walked behind Jasmine on her own. After a mile or so of woods, the older man turned around. Yeah, this is where we part company. Uh, we gotta take this trail west. Uh, you boys need to keep going north, uh, northwest. You'll pass a golf course. Uh, by then, you should see the mountain. Their camp is at the foot of the mountain on the east side. Uh, well, good luck with your friend. The men waved as they turned to jog west onto a narrow trail. The dense woods ended abruptly. A long fairway stretched before them. The wide cone of Mount Monadnock loomed over the tree line. Trevor hadn't responded to Martin's calls for twenty minutes. They encountered a patrol, a man and a woman, from the camp. Robert explained the situation briefly. The two led the way to a barricaded driveway that led up to the main buildings. A sentry at the gate ushered their horse stretcher up to a long two-story structure. Despite its size, the pale yellow building was unimpressive. 
It had little decorative touches, attempting to make it look less plain. Several people came out to help lift Trevor out of the travois. Martin was relieved to see him open his eyes. They carried him through some double doors. Oh, you don't look too good yourself, said a gray-haired man. He pointed to Martin's face. Oh, you should come in for a little clean-up. Ah, you go on in, said Robert. I'll tend to the horses. Uh, you got any grass and water? Robert asked one of the campers. The man pointed to a little park beside a pond. Inside of the dowdy building was a large room poorly lit by a row of small windows. It took Martin a while for his eyes to adjust. He could see that Trevor was laid on a long table in an adjoining room. A young woman worked on Trevor's wounds. She cleaned it and looked like she was stitching him shut. Kayla's busy with your friend, said a different young woman. I've been learning from her. They told me that you had some, uh, oh my. She paused as she studied Martin's various cuts and bruises. Oh, you've been having some rough days, I see. She dabbed a wet cloth on the rock scrape on Martin's head. The fight had knocked off the scabs. Oh, not much I can do for your black eye, uh, I'm afraid. Oh, that's okay, said Martin. This is plenty. Robert and I need to get going. Uh, could we leave Trevor here until he's better? Martin tried to think optimistically that Trevor would recover with a closed wound and enough rest. Oh, sure, said the young woman. Your friend is really well blessed that we have Kayla with us now. None of our group had any medical training. She came with the wanderers from Mass. Martin was only half listening. He wanted Trevor to get better, but he also was impatient to get back on the trail. He and Robert wouldn't be able to reach the state park as planned, but any mile or two closer to the river would be good. Oh, what is this place? Martin asked. He felt well blessed that such a place with medical supplies existed so near to where they got jumped. Oh, this? the woman asked. Manadnock Ministries? Uh, we're a conference center. Uh, at least we used to be. Truth is, we were in pretty bad shape before the others arrived, said the woman. She dabbed some ointment in the scratches on Martin's face. From the way she spoke, how everything sounded like a question, and her mannerisms, Martin guessed that she was in her early twenties. Her hollow cheeks and sunken eyes made her look closer to forty. We were between conferences when the power went out, she said. Everyone had gone home a few days before. Oh, that was good, you know, because it meant we didn't have all the cabins full of people. We couldn't have taken care of them all. The truck had just delivered supplies for the next conference, like the day before, that it all went dark. Martin's eyes flashed back to the first day and the confusion in Boston. It seemed like so long ago, or like it was somebody else's life. But even with the extra supplies, she continued as she dabbed, we weren't really ready. I suppose I should speak for myself, right? I was totally not ready for the darkness, the silence, or the loneliness. There were only eighteen of a staff. The director and his wife made twenty. Martin could relate to not being ready when the power went out. His walk home was more improvised bumbling than an executed plan. His trip to get the antibiotics for Margaret was more planned, but things had a habit of not going according to plan. It was God working, she said. The wanderers had been chased out of their home in mass and needed a place to live. We didn't know it at the time, but we needed people with guns. The wanderers had guns. We didn't. 
the raiders from mass started showing up a couple of months later. The new people did patrols and stuff, kept us safe. A man showed Robert through the door. He peered into the dark interior. Over here, called Martin. I'm just about patched up. Uh, we should get going. Martin stood slowly. His legs felt wooden. Oh, I don't think so, said Robert. Sun's already down behind the mountain. It'll be too dark to ride in an hour. Too dark to ride is also too dark to set up camp. Well, we got to get closer to the river, protested Martin. We have to be on that island tomorrow at noon. I know that. Don't worry. I looked at my maps. Where we are now is only a half a day's ride from the river. If we leave before dawn tomorrow, we'll make it in plenty of time. Martin was torn. His impatience wanted to eke out every mile of progress while it was possible. The stop felt like betraying Margaret. Yes, his body was battered, sore, and exhausted, but he felt that shouldn't matter. Well, we don't have any spare beds, the young woman said. Uh, the wanderers filled our cabins and guest rooms. Oh, that's okay, said Robert. We were going to sleep on the ground tonight anyway. A smooth floor would be an upgrade compared to rocks and sticks. Uh, you're sure? Martin wanted someone to break his internal tie vote. Uh, sure, said Robert. Peaches and Jasmine will go faster after a night's rest. I have the three of them bedded down in the groundkeeper's garage. They're all huddled together on the floor like kittens. Martin slumped back into the chair, too exhausted to argue that Robert had already committed them to stay since he had taken the saddles and tack off of the horses. The young woman exchanged words with the nurse taking care of Trevor. Uh, Kayla says your friend will be okay. He, he lost a lot of blood, but he's taking a little food and drinking. Uh, that's a good sign. Uh, he's sleeping now. Uh, okay, said Martin reluctantly. We'll sleep here, then head out before dawn. There you have the conclusion of Chapter 22. When this chapter is released, it's December 1st, and New Hampshire has settled into that brown stage of winter. Almost all the leaves are off the trees. The woods are bare trunks and branches with patches of dark green of pine and hemlock. The red oaks still have some of their copper-colored leaves. The beeches still are hanging on to some of their manila folder-colored leaves. Nights have been well below freezing for several weeks, so the ground is frozen hard. The white part of winter could start any time, but there's nothing in the forecast, so we just wait in the brown part. I suppose since I have the tractor all set up to clear snow, I won't see any until January. I brought in my elderberry seedlings a few weeks ago, before the hard frosts, so they could overwinter in the garage. There they'll be cool, but not frozen solid. I'll see how many come back to life in the spring. Still got to figure out a place to plant them. Got to remember to water them from time to time, too. They're on the backside of my trucks, so easily out of sight, out of mind. I also brought in two of the roots from my runner beans this summer. I'm keen to see if they overwinter in the garage, too. Last year's runner bean roots, in the ground, didn't survive the winter, despite my having mulched them heavily with leaves. The last of this year's harvest processing is almost done. The last bucket of sauerkraut is about halfway through its fermenting. Next weekend, I can jar that up and put it on the shelf. The bustle before Christmas is starting to ramp up, but I'm trying to carve out time to write more on Book 6. 
Monthly members on Buy Me a Coffee and Patreon have had access to the chapters I've released thus far. I think I'm up to chapter 9 so far. I'll be posting 10 soon. If you're curious, check out my Buy Me a Coffee or Patreon pages. Of course, virtual coffees are always welcome. I do appreciate your support.